Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, welcome world. Thanks for being and listening to another one of our Mindful Leader podcasts. With me today, I have a, a close friend of mine. We've been working together about four or five years now. Steve Ware, he's, uh, he's an amazing gentleman, as you'll find out in, in just a sec. But he has over 28 years of experience in information technology. He's also a mindfulness teacher. And he's the work, he's a workplace advisor for the University of Oxford and their mindfulness center. Steve, thanks for being with us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Pat. You're welcome. So let's jump right into it. Mm. What are, in your opinion, some of the biggest problems that leaders face today? Well, I thought you were going to start with an easy question. <laughs> Um, particularly around mindfulness, or do you think, or in general, or what's? Oh, yeah, I think in, in 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 general, we have to assume that uh, not all leaders are are aware of mindfulness. So, mm. just a typical. Maybe that's yeah. Maybe that's part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, I see. I, I mean, I, I obviously I've got no real um, political comments to make. But I remember the first thing that comes to mind, I remember watching, I'm a big fan of, I don't know if you know Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. Do you know him? So he's this, he's this incredible dog. Um, he could, he could sense and learn and kind of feel dogs. Yeah, dogs get him, right? And he can, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So he's a, he's a dog. I mean, he, he works with the psychology of dogs. So he's a, he, he rehabilitates dogs. He trains people, I think is his motto. And he, he said a phrase years ago that really stuck with me. He said, he said only humans are the only species that will follow an unstable pack leader. Humans are the only species that will follow an unstable pack leader. Nice. Because we can be kind of man, manipulated, I think, as humans. We can be hoodwinked. We can be... You know, fear can, can drive us. Fear of many things can, can make us act in, in a way. And he, I guess the point he was making that animals, dogs particularly, he was referring to, are, uh, will not follow an unstable energy. And it was a powerful expression to hear and it's something that stuck with me. And, I mean, to get back to your question, what's, what are the, what are some of the problems that, that leaders face. I mean, we're in unprecedented times, aren't we? We're in as a as a as a planet. We've never gone through this. I don't think anybody alive today has experienced a global pandemic like this. Mm. So there are huge challenges for everybody. I think the world's anxiety is up. I think I sense fear, uncertainty in a lot of people. It's palpable. Not just in the elderly, not just in the, the most vulnerable groups, but everybody and everybody's. Everybody's life has been turned upside down. So I think, I think one of the biggest challenges in this moment is how are we going to stay calm? How are we going to settle the collective anxiety? And how are we going to have stable leaders take us through this in a time that's going to be so uncertain? Because as we talk here on the 11th of September 2020, we don't have a vaccine. There are various states of lockdown. I mean, I'm in England you know, we're, we're locked down to a greater or lesser extent, depending on where you are. 
um, depending on what country you go to. If you can even go to that country, you may have to quarantine when you come back. So everybody's lives have been really turned upside down. And I think, I think, I think a leadership that we need is, is a, is a calm, positive, mindful leader, really, that's going to show us the way out of this. And that's not going to be easy. That's not going to be easy, I think. And I think people are angry. I think people are upset. I think people are anxious. So I think there's probably more emotion around at the moment than I've felt probably in my entire life. I mean, if, if we look at what's going on, especially in the U.S., all sorts of unrest. And I think just people in general, their, their emotions are very, very high. Um, it coincided with me doing more mindful teaching this summer. I started teaching mindfulness more in IBM in this pandemic. And, and that was great because I felt just as we started in May, I, I felt we were, I felt like the whole, everybody was kind of holding their breath. Nobody knew what to do. What was this virus going to do to us? What was this pandemic going to do? And it forced many of us to reevaluate our priorities, many of us to live moment by moment. And I think a lot of good is coming out of it, and I hope a lot of good does come out of this. One of the first things I saw was some some of the great teachers, Eckhart Tolle and John Kabat-Zinn and guys at Oxford University, Chris Cullen and others, that were releasing free podcasts and free webinars and free... You could tune into live events just just to just to help people because I don't think people knew what to do or where to go or what to do with this build up of energy and mainly fear. There's no outlet for it for many people, mm. and it's a difficult thing to hold. It's a difficult thing to live with. So I think we're probably in more challenging times for our leaders now than than, than ever before. Yeah, maybe ever before, certainly for many, many years, because we're in uncharted waters, aren't we? We don't, we really don't know. So we're holding a lot of uncertainty as well as a lot lot of fear. And of course, a lot of people are losing their jobs and a lot of people are being affected financially. So that adds the extra burden. So it's, it's a real challenging time. And when we turn to our leaders, I mean, depending on your definition of leader, I guess, because we've got obviously leaders of countries. But then we've got leaders of people within countries, I think, people that people that I would turn to to take direction, mm. not necessarily politicians who are, who are writing the rules and telling us when we need to be locked down and when we don't, but the people that are offering a more emotional advice, people are offering more practical steps. How do you deal with the emotion you have? How do you work with that? Because it's all very well knowing the rules. You know, you can go, you can see six people. You can mix two households, whatever your lockdown rules are. You know, you can go to this restaurant or this is just a takeaway now. Or That's all the practical stuff. But what about the emotional stuff, which is fundamentally more important to resolve? Yeah. Um, not just for the adults, for the kids as well. I can't imagine how hard it's been for kids not being in school, teenagers not being out of mix. University starting, everything shifting online. It's just, it's the kind of thing, Pat. I mean, if, if, if we'd done this last year, 
And for some reason, we'd said, oh, you never know, next year, you know, a global pandemic might hit and we may, <laughs> working from home may be the norm. Everyone would just be listening to this laughing, saying, these two crazy guys talking about a pandemic may come. So it's, it's, uh, it's been interesting. It's been interesting for me personally to observe my, I've really dipped into my personal mindfulness practice a lot. It's been crucial. I was speaking to someone at IBM about it in the, in the first few months and she said to me, is your mindfulness practice helping you? No, she said, what does, what's the exact word? She said, um, what does your mindfulness practice mean to you at a time like this? Mm. I only needed to answer with one word and the one word was everything. Practically everything. It helps me sleep better. It helps me be aware of the emotions. It helps me allow the emotions to come and go without trying to push them down, without trying to resist them, without trying to pretend they're not there. It's, a, it's an incredible skill. And, and when I talk about mindfulness and teach mindfulness, my main aim is to make things around mindfulness so normal, so natural, so everyday, so devoid of you know, new age tags and navel gazing tags and weirdos. Um, that would be my, that would be my mission to, to, to make this as normal, to make, to make meditating, to make being mindful as normal as, you know, going for a run, eating healthily. If, uh, and if we can break those barriers down, uh, and I think we really are, I think, I think we've shifted a lot in the last, Certainly in the last 10 years, um, it's become much more of a, of a mainstream, much more of a secular thing. In the West, I'm talking really here. Right. I mean, right. in the East, it's uh, been that way for a long time. But I think we in the West, you know, sweeping statement, but we in the West are probably more cynical. We're probably more, we probably take more convincing. We probably need to see a little bit more science. We probably need to really try it and experience it before we can understand it. I, I think, I think, I mean, that's a massive sweeping statement, but I think as a, as a, as a society as a whole, remember John Kabat-Zinn's story about when he brought mindfulness to, to America in the late seventies, early eighties. And he had, and he created this great program that ended up being called mindfulness based stress reduction, you know, from which, Oxford's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and finding peace in the frantic world and so much great stuff came. So we've got John Cabot's in in the early 80s and I heard him say a story once he put this sign up above his above his sort of classroom where he was going to teach. So he had this kind of eight-week course kind of mapped out, I think, and, and he called it a meditation course and nobody showed up. Who wants, to, who wants to go to a meditation course? That's not going to really help. So he took the sign down, he put another sign up saying stress reduction course. And the course was booked out, people queuing around the block for it. Same content, same course, different title, different words. Um, So words are powerful. Words are powerful. Lots of problems (laughs) that, that leaders are facing these days and no pressure to anybody that's that's listening to this based off what uh steve is saying and i know you're you're getting a little bit into you know uh some of the other elements that we'll talk about briefly 
Um, but I will interrupt you and I will ask you if you have any credo, any mantra, any saying or a quote that you came by, something that resonates with you right now. Yeah, so I think there's two. There's two. One would be we are what we practice and we're always practicing something. You've got to have that last few words on the end of that sentence. Everybody understands. If you say we are what we practice, everybody kind of nods their head. But when you add that end bit, we always practice. We're always practicing something. That's when people stop and reflect and say, actually, oh, yeah, we are. So even if I'm practicing thinking anxious thoughts, even if I'm practicing being angry, even if I'm practicing being distracted, I'm practicing it. Even if I'm practicing daydreaming, even if I'm practicing sitting, seemingly doing nothing. So that's a powerful one because when we acknowledge that we're always practicing something, then we can start to think maybe we want to influence what we do practice and look at that so that would be one and the second one would be a Chris Cullen uh, statement and, he, and it's, to, it's very simply is to honour where you are in this moment yeah. it's so tempting in all walks of life for me personally to want to be somewhere else mentally yeah. to want to be a better meditator in quotes to want to have more experience to want to be a better teacher to want to be and always kind of leaving the present moment and and Chris's words I heard that I heard him say those words they meant the most when I was at I was at Oxford I was learning to teach finding peace in the friendship world and we all stood around at the end and I was in the company of great people there I was I was there I'm an IBM I wasn't I wasn't teaching mindfulness then I was I was a full-time IBMer and um, I was among all these great meditation teachers who were learning from an even better meditation teacher in some sense, Chris. This, kind of, this guy is running a masterclass at Oxford. And it was very easy, I wrote about this in my blog, it's very easy for, for me there to feel intimidated, to feel, uh, to have a bit of a imposter syndrome. Mm. You know, should I really be here? Am I good enough to be in this Oxford masterclass? wow, everybody around me has got much more experience. They must be way better than me at this. and I'm not fit to lace their shoes and all these kind of thoughts. So I had a lot of those thoughts going through my head over the weekend, which was interesting to kind of observe. And then at the end, we all, we all gathered in the, in the room in a, in a circle and just reflected on the weekend. And he said, he said, just honor where you are. Because wherever you are in this moment is the right place for you. Mm. And it doesn't matter where anyone else is. They're on their journey. You're on your journey. And this, this place is the right place for you in this moment. And, and it was very, something clicked when he said that. It was, it was a, a real, I almost felt like I could breathe out again. I was just kind of, oh, okay, it's okay to be where I am now. And, um, and the for me, especially you... when I'm learning, I kind of have this sense I've got to do well at this. I've got to have this miles. Very common to set milestones, isn't it, for everything we do in life and, they're really useful for so many parts of our lives and right. project plans in work and many courses and things we learn. It's great to have fixed milestones that we need to be in this place by this time. I don't find that 
attitude or that kind of marking system helpful in my progress as a meditator and someone who's practicing mindfulness? I don't find that helpful. So if you keep reminding yourself or keep practicing honoring where you are, it's something that you become, right? It's something that becomes sort of natural to try to merge those two quotes. I like it. Yeah. It can, yeah. And I think it can bring some relief to some people. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Because we are a nation, we're, we're probably a nation of people that, that compares more than ever. I mean, social media has us constantly comparing, doesn't it? It holds up this perfect image of man, woman, girl, boy, whatever you, however old you are. You need to aspire to this image. You now, marketing is aspiring to being this great person who's wearing this or who looks like this. And so there's a lot of comparison all the time. If we can drop that in some senses for some of our lives, I think it's just a relief. It's like putting down a bag, a really heavy bag that you're carrying. Yeah, yeah. I really like what you know what you're saying because there's people that a lot of us want are thinking about the future. Not in the present because we want to make the, it's like we want to make the present better. It's not good enough. Mm. So we say, oh, you know, you see, I don't know, something in your house and you're like, oh, I need to, I need to work on that or I need to fix that. And we already start. So even when someone is, you know, noticing something in the present, they're just keeping it in their presence for a second and then already they're jumping into the future. A lot of negative emotions involved, even even when they have a good intention, right? They're they're looking at something now here to make it better. Yeah, Eckhart Tolle sums that up really nicely. He says, "So many of us, for so many of us, the things we do are a means to an end, rather than an end in themselves." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's such an easy habit. I mean, you know, and when we're talking about this, by the way, I'm not. I'm not saying that I'm this great enlightened being who um, is mindful at all times and totally in the present moment. And you know, this is a work in progress for me. So I can I can repeat all these incredible things that Eckhart Tolle says, <laughs> but it's a work in progress for me. It's a, it's a habit of a lifetime. It's a practice of a lifetime. I think it's something you most of us mere mortals have to uh, constantly remind ourselves of. True that. True that. So, and I know you you reference this uh, in in the first answer uh, to some extent. What is a mindful leader, or what is mindful leadership? And I guess to reiterate what you what you said, why is it important now? Mm. So, a mindful leader to me is something that that is that is palpable, something that you can sense. When you're in, actually, you don't even need to be in the presence of that person in my experience. So you can, you can get it from watching them on YouTube or on some other stream. Two people I'd, I'd pick out, I've mentioned them both already, but, but a mindful leader to me is someone who doesn't have a big, they don't have a, a big ego for a start around, I am this great teacher. I've arrived. There's no sense of superiority. There's no, there's no difference between them and the people they're teaching, mm. the people they're leading, effectively. So the humility is natural. The beginner's mind is natural. And the willingness to, to be in the present moment, to not know, to allow things to unfold, 
is there too. And, and that's great leadership for a start, I think. Um, and I can sense it. I, I can really sense it that if I, if I go back to Chris and that teaching weekend, that was, that was probably the best class I'd been at, I've ever been at. And the reason it's so good is because he really, he really embodies mindfulness. He really embodies it. He, he, he lives it. He's breathing it, and it just comes across in his teachings, in his manner, in his delivery, in his tone. His words are carefully chosen. The amount of space he leaves, the pauses, his delivery is really great, and and he's very engaging. And and I find that also true of Eckhart Tolle. I had the pleasure of seeing Eckhart live. He came to London about this time last year, I think. It must have been, I think it was September, either September, October last year, 2019. And he, he came to the Albert Hall in London, which for those of you who don't know is a, is a beautiful building in, in London. Holds about 5,000 people here and they hold things, they've held concerts there and, and all sorts. It's a, it's, a, it's a lovely venue in London. And Eckhart sold that out, which was, um, which made me smile because I, you know, you, you'll see Eckhart talk about, you know, he's been teaching for, for many years and he's gone from teaching one person, two people at a kind of weekend thing that he do where I think one weekend actually either one person or no, or nobody showed up. He's gone from that to having a, a Royal Albert Hall in London completely set out. And that was encouraging. That was encouraging. The appetite for seeing these people mm. was really encouraging. And he had this presence. So he comes out. He came out. He did four hours. Started at five o'clock in the afternoon. He did night. He, he did till nine p.m. His partner Kim was there. But apart from a short interval of about twenty minutes, and Kim led us in a guided meditation. The whole, the whole hall, five thousand people meditating. She led us through that for about half an hour. So what's that? It's about fifty minutes. So Eckhart was talking for the other three hours ten. No script. Nothing pre-prepared, no show. You didn't turn up to watch anything that he was doing that he'd repeated before. So he comes out and he sits on the chair and he's very still and he talks. There didn't even need to be any questions. He talked and, and every word he said, you could have had a pin drop in there. People were so engaged. Every word he said was worth listening to. That's another trait, I think, of a, of a great mindful leader. Almost every word they say is worth listening to. And it was a really powerful experience to be, that you could feel the energy of the room shift. I, one thing I laughed at, I came home and told my wife, because when you go to the Royal Albert Hall, there's kind of bars around this. It's a traditional sort of circular theatre, and so there's bars all around the side. And we had an interview on Eckhart's okay, we've got 20 minutes. He said, I'd probably advise you not to have a alcoholic drink unless you really want one. But so anyway, everybody funneled out. And normally interviewing a show in London, you know, the bars are rammed. You've got 20 minutes to get out, get your drink, drink and get back in. So everybody's fighting for a spot at the bar. Everyone's waving their money to the to the bartender to say, serve me now. But during the Eckhart thing, I just <laughs> as I walked past, I was going to the loo and I walked past. There's just these perfect cues. <laughs> Everybody's kind of letting everybody pass after you, after you. 
And it was, um, it just made me laugh because I thought, wow, no, nobody had asked them to do that. Nobody had said to form a really orderly queue, be really nice to each other, be calm, take your time. But there, just, there was just this really nice feel about it all that was, um, that was great. So I really enjoyed that evening with him. And he just, he just, I guess to sum it up, you know, he, he's just, he's just mindfulness or presence would be the word he uses. He's that, he's the embodiment of that. Mm. Uh, and when you're around that, it's a lovely person to be around. It's a lovely, personally, I find it very relaxing to be around. And it's, um, it was a great night. So if anybody listening ever gets a chance to see Eckhart live, I'd really recommend it. I, I would certainly try and see him live again if I can. It was a really powerful, great evening. Thanks for sharing that. If you can, if you can go to any period in time, what period would you go to and why? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky one. I'd, I think I'd stay here. I think I'd stay here because I, I think we're at a really exciting, I hope we're at a really exciting tipping point. For this kind of stuff, and by this kind of stuff, I mean people starting to just look after their mental health a bit better. Mm. Just taking some time to ground themselves every now and just taking some time to to step out of that continual, incessant stream of thinking. To just learn ways to center yourself and to just be present. And when you are present, it feels great. It feels still. It feels it feels like a nice place to be. So, yeah, I mean, if I if I look at where mindfulness in the West came from, and I talked about John Kabat-Zinn earlier, so that was early 80s. So, you know, in, in that time, it's 40-odd years. It's, it's, it's really moved significantly. And I, th- I think I think we're starting to see the shift in the, in the last, certainly the last few years where, as the younger generations are coming through, it's very normal to them. If I if I do a talk to graduates from university, um, on average, they don't think uh, the concept of meditation is weird. They they just see it as a really useful tool, as something that that can really help them. Mm. So I think my generation. I mean, I'm in my mid forties. Maybe my generation and above take a little bit more. I don't want to use the word convincing because you never try and convince anyone of anything, but that they're a little bit less open to it to start with, maybe. So it's exciting to see as the younger generations come through that this may, as, as we move through the, the upcoming years, become more and more of a normal thing. And, and who knows, one day it may form part of our school curriculum and that would be something new. Just like uh, brushing our teeth, right? Yeah. So how do I, um, how do I, or you know, the, the the listeners, how do we bring about more mindful leadership? How does a leader become more mindful? How does a leader bring this into the workplace? How do we bring about more mindful leadership, in a sense? Mm-hmm. 
I think I think the key is that that mindfulness needs to become not something separate from your life, but something that is that punctuates your life. Mm. So we talk in the course about the difference maybe between meditation and mindfulness. Meditation being this formal practice, this practice of of retraining our attention to be where we want it to be. So not constantly lost in thinking. And how do we how do we not get so absorbed in thinking that we just don't know we're thinking and we're constantly caught up in it? We retrain our attention to step out now and then. We focus on something to do that. We place our attention either on the breath or maybe on an anchor point in the body or you can even just really tune into sound. There's lots of anchors that you can rest your attention with. And I think if I was to describe mindfulness, my definition of mindfulness would be simply a different way of doing what you're already doing. So bringing an awareness to what you're doing already. And so what does that mean? How, how could a listener practice this? So if you're listening and you've never done any of this and this isn't making a lot of sense, Maybe you could start tonight when you you just mentioned brushing your teeth. That would be a good example to use. So maybe tonight, or if it's early in the morning, when you next brush your teeth, just notice where your attention is. Just notice where your mind is. Just notice how much thinking you're doing. Just notice how distracted you are. Maybe Maybe you'll have your phone in your other hand, which I'm guilty of. Brushing your teeth with one hand, checking Twitter in the other. And just note, the first step can just be noticing, not saying even do anything about it, just notice it. Notice where your attention is. Notice how in autopilot mode you are as you move through the day. And so I, I think the transformational changes happen. People really start to use big words and see huge things change in their lives when they can incorporate mindfulness into their days now. So it doesn't need to be this monumental effort. Doesn't, they don't need to suddenly fi- need to find huge amounts of time, extra time that they don't have. And, and how do they do that? There's, you know, there's lots of ways of punctuating your day with, with mindfulness. And it can be as simple as, it can be as simple as taking a conscious breath. I mean, if everybody listening now, we could just take a conscious breath together. A con- what does a conscious breath mean? A conscious breath means, you just drop your attention down into the sensations of breathing right in this moment. So the next inhale, just notice the sensations of breathing. So what's going on for you? Where can you notice the breath in the body? You may notice uh, the nostrils. Maybe there's a cool air. Maybe you notice it in the chest. Maybe you notice it in the belly as it expands and contracts. And if you're able, even for one second then, if you're able to fully be with your breath, fully have your attention on the physical sensations of breathing, then you won't have been thinking. So you will have stepped out of this autopilot mode. You have been present in that moment. And that's mindfulness. That's That's something you could do you could take two breaths an hour for the rest of the day or the next time your phone rings, just, just before you pick it up or answer that WhatsApp message. 
Just drop the breath, just drop the attention to breath, just for a second. Okay, two breaths. And then do what you're going to do anyway. And these things sound small, they sound silly, they sound insignificant, they sound like they're not going to do anything, change anything. But the cumulative effect of them can be hugely powerful. If you, if you, if you manage to punctuate your day with small mindful moments, you'd be amazed how much difference that can make. In my experience, it can make a, a lot of difference. If someone is not convinced of how small things can make profound changes, try sleeping in a room with a mosquito. <laughs> I had that last night. <laughs> it's that time of year here. Yeah. If you leave the windows open too late and the lights on, in they come. Mm. Yeah. Or if you said to someone, if I said to someone, you're going to have, you're going to have two negative thoughts every hour for the next, on the hour, every hour for the next six weeks. Do you think that may affect your mood at all? Most people would say, well, yeah, but I guess it would after a while. So maybe the, maybe the reverse is true. Maybe if you took two conscious breaths an hour when you remember to do so, maybe over the, over a period of time that could have a, Steve, for the final question, anything that you want to leave the listeners with or the readers with? Any program, material, words of wisdom that uh, they should check out? I think my one... My one piece of advice, if anybody's listening to this and they've either kind of lapsed in their practice or they haven't got around to it yet, they're thinking of doing it, I would say two or three things that I've learned about meditation, about mindfulness. The first one, maybe the most important one, if you are going to do it, Try not to judge it over a short period of time. It's very enticing to see an incredible Facebook post, an incredible review by someone saying, I'm sleeping amazingly, my blood pressure's down, my immune system got boosted. You can read all these things and think, I want some of that. Fantastic. Okay, let me sign up for this Finding Peace eight-week course. That sounds like a great idea. And you get two weeks in and you're saying, mm, am I sleeping better? Am I less stressed? I don't know if I am. So either I, either I don't know how to do it I can't do it, or it doesn't work. So I might as well give up. So in, in a world that's, that's obsessed with quick fixes, yeah. if you can not bring so much of that attitude to your mindfulness practice, whether you're just listening to an app 10 minutes a day, whether you're following a, a, an eight-week program, my recommendation would be to judge it over a period of eight weeks. I think that's probably why most courses are eight weeks. If you can do some practice, if you can do 10 minutes a day. Just 10 minutes a day is not a huge amount. If you can do 10 minutes a day for eight weeks, that's scientifically the tipping point at which they can measure on the body and in the brain the effects of mindfulness. So tip number one would be judge it in the long term. And tip number two would be be kind to yourself. Your mind's going to wander. 
you're going to get it wrong in quotes. That is the practice. Everybody's minds wander, maybe more so when they're starting out, but everybody's minds wander. So you need you need to have a sense of kindness to this. If you come in with strict rules and strict targets and being unkind to yourself, you'll probably just end up with a huge headache every time you sit and meditate. So this is a constant practice for me, being kind to myself. I don't find it that natural, but it makes all the difference. It's it's so powerful. It's so the, the most progress I've made in my meditation practice has been when I've been I brought a sense of kindness and allowing to what's here in this moment. Whatever it is, good, bad or indifferent. And if you can do that, if you could, if you can bring an attitude of friendliness and curiosity and kindness to your practice and to life, I guess, then um I think that's a great starting point rather than having these fixed goals. I must be here and I must get this good by this time. Kind of gritting your teeth and it's not about gritting your teeth. It's not about controlling. It's, it's an allowing. It's a letting be as best you can. And, and then things will probably settle for you. Your mind will start to settle for you. And that's, that's when great things happen. There you have it. Thank you, Steve, so much for. It's a pleasure for the time for for speaking for sharing um, so many nuggets of knowledge and even more nuggets of wisdom. Thanks again, Steve. Any final last words for the audience? Thanks for listening. Thanks for spending the last however many minutes with us. It's been uh, been great to talk to you, Pat. And I hope people found something in here valuable and. Uh, yeah, good luck to us all out there as we carry on in our pandemic-affected lives. Mm. And be kind to everybody else. That's, that's going to be a big thing, I think, for all of us moving forward, isn't it? Sounds like a cliche. I think especially at a time like this, kindness and compassion. We're talking about it for, for yourself. It's been an important part of your own meditation practice. Right. And, and, and to what you were saying, let's not judge ourselves just yet. Let's give ourselves maybe not eight weeks, but eight years for this one. <laughs> yeah. Kind of need to be patient, I think. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Pat.